I want to read a very familiar passage. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but to remind you of it, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. We could go on and read the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, which elaborates and defines what that love is and how it looks. This is a passage we often hear in wedding ceremonies, one that we're usually asked, where is the love chapter in the Bible? We know it's 1 Corinthians 13. But we need to make sure we go beyond understanding this is a beautiful and poetic piece, a portion of God's Word, and recognize that what it says is that love is central. Love is really at the heart of what God is about. God is love, and we are called to reflect that in our lives. We're called to reflect it in our families. Love is central because love is essential to who God is. And so as we begin to talk about how to love our families, we want to understand that the Bible puts love at the apex, at the very top of our priorities of what we are living for, why we get up every day and do what we do. At least it should be. It should occupy that place of importance, though we so easily forget it. Now, it is common in the epistles of Paul for him to begin with theology and then to conclude his epistles with some practical application of that theology. If your theology isn't practical, then I suspect it's not true. It's missing something. It's missing something that is vital. Theology is simply what God thinks about any particular matter. We can have a theology of work and a theology of the family, a theology of any given subject, because God thinks about everything. And so our goal is to discover what he thinks, and he has revealed some of what he thinks, of course, in his word. And so our goal is first to make his thoughts our thoughts, but if we stop there, we fall short because we also need to make his ways our ways. God doesn't give us truth to be kept in our head just as theories. He gives us truth to set us free, to enable us, to live an abundant life. I mentioned before to you that I ran across a quotation from Nancy Wolgamuth a few weeks ago that said, great theology leads to good marriages. But we can expand on that and say that great theology leads to a good life because it's great theology that enables us to see life as it really is. Ideas have consequences, consequences have ideas behind them. And so when we look at our families, if, it's a, if things are going well, if, we're, if we see blessing, if we see uh, fruitfulness, we see love, we see joy, there are ideas that are producing that behind that. And if we want to see those things, if they're not present, then perhaps we need to change some of our ideas, some of our theology. Perhaps we're not thinking about our role as father and husband or mother or wife or child in the way God wants us to in order to have that kind of fruit. 
And so in my talks with you, I want to take some ideas, I want to take some theology about God and about the family and give you something to work with. Two things are central to both God and family. Communion and love. These two things describe the Trinity. Roy just finished an excellent series in our Sunday school on the Trinity, and I'm going to be building on that today. These two things also should define your family. And so I want to begin by defining the terms communion and love. The word communion is made up of the words common and unity. It's also where we get, our, get words like communication, and these are closely related to the idea of community. It is, of course, possible to have union without communion or without community. But unity is part, the unity part is essential if we are going to have communion and community. You've heard me say, and I'll say it again, that if you tie two cat's tails together and throw them over a clothesline, you have, you have uh, union, but you don't have communion. We need some love in there. And that's, and that's why love is so essential. It's not just being together in a room. It's not just being in proximity to one another that makes a community. It's something more than that. The opposite of community is isolation. Now, there are degrees of both community and isolation. Many like to treat the community as something they can step into or out of uh, at any given moment, at will, even in the family. Thus, even when they're officially or technically in community, they can usually be found hanging out on the edges to enable a quick retreat back into isolation. A minimal involvement with a community that is still focused on self-interest, which is the opposite of love. Self-interest is the opposite of love. Even, the, even community events, in the, in the case of some folks, are all about them. What's in it for me? Will I participate? Well, I don't know. I don't like that. That's not my thing. And so I won't participate with the group because it's all about me. When the group serves me, then I'll be part of the group. And so, for example, a child might be part of the family, that is, part of the community, yet still function outside the community by either demanding to be the center of attention in the community or else by living an isolated life within the family. Where's Johnny? He's in his bedroom playing games. Doors closed, doing his own thing. Technically in the family, technically in the community, but not really. You see, in the church, it's seen in the smorgasbord of picking and choosing which things to participate in, again, based upon personal likes and dislikes. One of the things we have to learn about life is there are all kinds of things that we have to do that we don't want to do. I hope, you've, I hope you've learned that. That's part of growing up. That's part of being adult. There are many, many... In fact, that's one of the great things you have to teach your children is there are many things that you don't like that you still have to do and you have to get happy about it. That's your job. That's your duty. That's what God's called you to do. And, and the sooner we learn that, the sooner children learn that, the happier 
they will be. And so I not only have to do them, I often have to do them at, at a time when I especially don't want to do them. It's never convenient. I'm never, sometimes I say, well, I just don't feel like that, or I'm not in the mood for that, or I'm not ready for that. And if God has given it for me to do, I, he thinks I am ready for it, and that I do need to do it, and I need to do it at that particular time. So I want to emphasize that when the Bible speaks of community, it is not speaking of pseudo-community, false community, something that looks like community but isn't community. It is speaking of real community and real communion. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves to become members of one another. And this will require sacrifice and self-denial. Love always does. Romans 12, 4 and 5, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so we are always attached to one another. Now, that's community. What about love? When we think of God, I trust that, when you think of God, when I think of God, I trust that we think of love. He who does not love does not know God, John says, for God is love. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. That's how closely associated these things are. However, in order for there to be love, in order for God to be love, there first must be an object of love because love is not abstract. We must love someone or something. And so the eternal God has always had an object of his eternal love. The Trinity of the three persons demonstrates the eternal love of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is love within the Godhead. In fact, their relationships are defined by mutual love. And since God is eternal, love has always existed. So the Godhead is engaged in this perfect, eternal dance of loving communion, in harmony, perfect harmony. So now God himself, who is love, sacrificed himself. This loving triune community sent one of their own not to lay down his life for his friends, but for his enemies. Why did he do this? He did it to turn the enemies into friends. The Father had a mission to save his people, and the Son came under that mission. In other words, the Son was in submission to the Father, in the Bible, the concept of love and sacrifice are synonymous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Greater love has no, man, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Through love, serve one another. And we could go on and on with examples of how Love and sacrifice are synonymous. And so as we come to think about loving our families, in all the various familial relationships, self-sacrifice is going to be at the heart of what we're called to do. 
I would suggest that almost all, and perhaps all, of the conflict in your family and in your family relationships is rooted in selfishness somewhere. Pride and selfishness. Selfishness is a manifestation of pride. Selfishness is always the enemy. It's at the heart of immaturity. Immaturity. Again, two two-year-olds with one toy in a room, the, my, my example of immaturity. Think about the initial call of Jesus to those who would follow him. What does he call us to? He calls us to self-denial, calls us to maturity. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus said, to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. And then I want you to deny uh, and set aside all of your relationships, your closest relationships, and all that stuff that you have, your house, your car, your clothes, your things. I want you to lay that down too. Give it all up. Come follow me. Now, what happens when we do that? Having submitted to the lordship of Jesus, he then sends us back to ourselves. He sends us back to our family and our friends. He sends us back to our things so that we can truly love them. While love is about self-sacrifice, one of the paradoxes of Scripture is that such self-sacrifice, rather than being restrictive or binding, is rather liberating. Thus, perfect love casts out fear. And we do un- as we do unto others, as we'd have them do unto us, lo and behold, others start doing the same thing to us at our fam- in our families when we sacrifice, when we give. Now, as we think about the Trinity again, I want you to understand that love is an expanding thing. Think about how much you loved that first child. I remember when Aaron was born and uh, we were enjoying having our first baby and loved him so much. And then I remember when we realized that we were going to have a second baby, there was that thought, a little bit of panic. How can I love a second child as much as I love the first child? Perhaps. You were the same way, I don't know. But you see, what we discover very quickly is that love grows and expands, and it reaches outward. Just as the creation of the cosmos grew out of the Trinity's love and communion, so too does the godly family. God is expanding his love, expanding the communion. The eternal Trinity is a community, uh, an eternal communion of love. And since since the triune God made us in his image, he likewise made us for the same kind of loving communion. We were meant to be together, to be together in love. Adam was created after God's image. This means he was to reflect the communion of the Trinity. And this is revealed in the fact that Adam was not created in isolation But first and foremost, he was created in covenant with the triune God. He walked with God. 
But there's still, there was still something missing, and thus God declared that it is not good for man to be alone. And so the triune God decided to throw a ball, and they invited us to the dance, to this communion of love. John 17, 22 through 23, And the glory, Jesus said, which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one, communion, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect, mature, in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's this swirl of love going on here between the Father and the Son and now us, His people. I think I shared this with some of you, but I want to read it. It's a longer quote from Robert Capon, but I really love it. Uh, this, uh, where he says, Let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being, and new kinds of being to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really? This is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, Terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them to juggle them, to join them, to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful, just what I had in mind. Good, good, good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like, How great it was for beings to be, and how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble of putting it together, and How considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever, they told old jokes, and the Father and the Son drank their wine in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, world without end. Amen. He says, it is, I grant you, a crass analogy. But crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of celestial sweet dessert we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash And I'll leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. Image-bearing demands that man, like God, 
live in communion. Man's identity, like God's, is essentially tied to his relationship with others. It's possible for a person in isolation from others to show forth, excuse me, it is impossible for a person in isolation from others to show forth the image of God in the fullest sense. He must have communion with other people in the family, in society, and ultimately in the church if he is to glorify the triune God. I would note that society and church were one and the same before the fall. Therefore, covenant is essential to image-bearing. Covenant defines relationships, whose duties and responsibilities this person or that person have toward the others. God's law defines all the relationships in a community. When we love Him, we keep His commandments. And the way we love each other is by obeying God toward one another. We treat each other the way God says we should treat each other. That's how we love. That's the, that's the, defining, uh, that's the defining law. In other words, when... We do what God says to do toward one another. We have true community. We have true communion. But sin is always the disruptor of communion. Isaiah says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Likewise, the Apostle Paul warns, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give a place to the devil. Sin is what disrupts communion. And so paradise before the fall was a uh, a place of perfect communion and perfect community. God, man, woman, creation. Everything was beautiful. And And since we're the image bearers of the triune God, it's important for us to consider how that looks and what it means. The nature of love is that it is focused not on self, but upon another. And since we're made in his image, we too too are to share in his love as we relate to others. And so the Trinity is community, and so too we were made to live in community or communion. We live and work together in collaboration. That's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did. And do. So in the family, in love and service, we have that same mission. Remember, we're to reflect Him. Like the Trinity, we have different roles. We talked about the economic Trinity, the economy, uh, a division of labor, if you will, and we have that in the family. Nevertheless, each of these roles was designed to function in loving, harmonious communion with each other. So when sin is out of the way, what we do in our respective roles turns out that we're working together for the same goal, the same objective, love, the glory of God. Oneness or communion involves having common goals, a unified will, joint activities. Different activities combine in harmony to produce a beautiful result. In fact, living in community... We actually never act alone. We're always connected. I want you to think about that. It's true 
in reverse, even when we're in conflict, and the results are strife and anger and bitterness and so forth. So it's an inescapable concept, in other words. We're always connected to each other. And so, if you do well, everybody else does well. What happens if the two-year-old is throwing a fit in the floor? Who's affected by that in the family? Everybody. And what if the father is the one throwing the fit? The family's even more affected, right? So your position... Uh, has bearing on how much impact your sin has on the family, but let's reverse that. The two-year-old's being cute and sweet and obedient. Who's affected? Everybody. We're all happy when the two-year-old's acting well. But how about dad? When he's mature and godly and fears the Lord and serves his family, who's affected? Everybody, even more. So we're always, you can't escape this. It's only a matter of what kind of impact you're having, not whether you have that impact. Oneness or communion involves, again, having these common goals. Um, uh, Thus, a family that's living in true, loving communion always acts in the best interest of the whole and not out of mere self-interest. It's what we call cooperation. It's a co-operation. Together. Every one of you, as followers of Christ, have an obligation to live in loving communion with all the other members of your family. And you should be asking this, how can I sacrifice, how can I love in order to contribute to greater communion? The family is an outpost of the church, of the body of Christ. When you go home to your house, you're still a member of the church. You're still part of the body of Christ. God's spreading us out in the community for a reason. To show his love. To show the world what loving communion looks like. That is our mission, period. Now, if this were the end of our story, we could say, and they lived happily ever after. But there was something rotten in Denmark, and the devil wants to destroy love and communion. It's a general principle that from the beginning, the devil wants to come between us and God. He also likes to come between husbands and wives, parents and children, relatives, friends, and neighbors. His philosophy is divide and conquer, or divide and kill. He and his minions, that's where minions came from, by the way. I don't think they're the little yellow ones. They're, uh, They're far more sinister. Uh, he and his minions work full-time to disrupt our communion with God and with one another. And this is why we must, he must constantly be resisted by you and me. He wants to break the communion in your family and your church. Paul warns, do not give a place or an opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. He does this by separating us, which is death. When someone dies physically, they don't cease to exist, but they are separated from us. The same is true for relationships. Sin kills. Sin separates in relationships. When man fell, it wasn't just the individual souls of Adam and Eve that were affected, but rather it was their entire existence. 
their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, and with the whole of creation was disrupted and destroyed by sin. Sin is the failure to maintain covenant, the failure to live in loving communion with God and with others. That is the problem. Thus, when Adam sinned, he died. Death, which is separation from God and the covenant, ensued immediately upon Adam's act of unbelief. Remember, the covenant, God's word, defines our place in the community. And so when we don't keep our place, when we don't keep our domain, like the fallen angels, we break the covenant and we rip the relationships apart. We tear the communion apart. Adam and his wife were now cut off from the source of life, the covenant. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Sin wrecked paradise. Communion was lost, the community was disrupted, and Adam forfeited everything. That's what death does. Westminster, larger catechism, question 22, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? You remember what Adam and Eve's mission was, right? It was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with what? More God-glorifying people in loving communion. Man's greatest need... Uh, excuse me, did, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? The answer, the covenant being made with Adam as, as a public person, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generations sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. All those descending from Adam would not come into the world upright, but covenantally dead in sin, cut off from the covenant, Strangers to life and in need of reconciliation and rebirth. And so he's now cut off from the covenant. In essence, he was alone. He was alienated from God. He was alienated from creation. And he was alienated from others. And so there was the birth of husband and wife conflict. It's been going on ever since. And parent and children's conflicts fathers and mothers, everything is now ugly, the communion is a wreck. Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 6, verse, uh, paragraph 2, by this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and the faculties of soul and body. We must remember that a covenant is not a thing. It's a relationship. It's always about love and communion, community. At the top of our list, the greatest priority in life is real communion. Pastor Steve Wilkins wrote this, This is what it means to be in covenant. Covenant is a gracious relationship with the triune God in which we are made partakers of his love and participants in the communion and fellowship that has existed from all eternity in the Godhead. Consequently, all who are brought into this covenant are called upon to live as God lives, in loving, sacrificial, 
self-denying sacrifice to others. Man's identity, like God's, is essentially tied to his relationships to other people. The covenant is life. It's not to not be in covenant and communion, excuse me, to not be in covenant and communion with God is death. The evidence that we are in covenant and communion with him is that we are in covenant and communion with each other. You can't say, oh, me and God, we're doing just fine, but me and my wife, not so great. Our family's a mess, but me and Jesus, we're doing fabulous. That's self-deception. 1 John 4, 20-21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Philippians 2, 14-16, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in, a wor- in the world, holding fast the word of life. Notice the relationships to God and to others as we hold fast to the word of life, we become shining lights in a crooked and perverse world. Now that's not easy. Look around you at all these real people with real problems. They, of course, can be difficult to live with, and that's putting it mildly. Well, we're going to stop there, and we're going to talk about redemption next time and how God in the gospel has come to take this mess that we've made and to begin to restore it to that place of loving communion. That's what the gospel is about. Father, we thank you for your plan to rescue us in spite of the mess we've made of things. You've loved us from eternity past, and you sent your Son and your Spirit to effect a redemption and a change to bring about true loving communion, that we might know you and love you and and reflect that in our relationships with each other. Help us especially, Lord, as we think about our families, of how we might indeed be lights that shine in, in the world around us, that they might see the gospel in us and in our families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.